Part 1. Storybook. Michele reclined, musing, in a dimly lit corner of the captain's quarters, awaiting the admiral's return. The two Italians had been friends since childhood days in Savona, and Michele could scarcely conceal his constant admiration, nor contain his profound delight at Christopher Carombo's career trajectory from small-town merchant sailor to governor of the West Indies. Michaela's own great good fortune to even be allowed a small part in this unfolding glory filled him with deep pride. His cheerful reverie was interrupted by the sound of the cabin door being kicked open. Michaela stood abruptly, hand-reaching for the dagger in his waistband. Two crewmen advanced into the centre of the cabin, dragging a partially covered Indio woman by the arms and tossing her roughly to the floor at Michaela's feet. Compliments of Almirante Cologne, the larger of the two, laughed, nudging his smaller compatriot. The two bowed, turned and were gone just as quickly as they had arrived, cap and door slammed shut behind them. The native girl had been captured earlier that day. She was attractive to Michaela, and his dear friend Christopher had taken note. Michaela removed the girl to his own cabin with some difficulty and would later write of the episode with no small amount of satisfaction. While I was in the boat, I captured a very beautiful Carib woman whom the Lord said Admiral gave to me. When I had taken her to my cabin, she was naked, as was their custom. I was filled with a desire to take my pleasure with her and attempted to satisfy my desire. She was unwilling, and so treated me with her nails that I wished I had never begun. But, to cut a long story short, I then took a piece of rope and whipped her soundly, and she let forth such incredible screams that you would not have believed your ears. Eventually we came to such terms, I assure you. You would have thought that she had been brought up in a school for whores. Liam stood above the tide line on the western beach, ankle deep in purslane, its small purple flowers dislodging a memory. As a boy, Liam's mother had told him stories of his dead father. While lying quiet and fearful in the dark jungle, she had whispered words of comfort to the child, in her own tongue and in the few words of Gaelic she had learned from the father of this, her only living child. Years ago, the boy's father had toiled on this same beach, pulling apart a wrecked ship at low tide, hauling the salvaged timbers to the hill above, where three dozen men attempted to construct a fort. By night, the Irish sailor had lain with Liam's mother, far from his home, sharing with her his memories of a childhood spent clambering amongst the heather-clad hills of his native Galway. He had tried to explain heather, Freyach, how it had tiny purple flowers, much like the shore purslane here in Kiskea. He told her of going to sea as a young orphan when the ship of Christopher Carombo, Comandara Cologne to his mostly Spanish crew, had stopped off in Galway seeking replacement crewmen for the journey from Iceland back to Spain. 
Liam had never known his sailor father, and his tiny mother had died of the Spanish disease in her 25th year of life. Liam had held her hand for the final few weeks, leading her to the stream to wash the sores which had closed and blinded her once gentle eyes. He wondered if he would one day see the land of his father's birth. He worried sometimes, not knowing to whose ancestors he belonged, or to whom he would go on his death day. In the mid-distance, a flotilla of eight, perhaps even ten-score watercraft, were speeding away from shore. Fine and sturdy, large dugout canoes under oar between larger rafts carrying square sails fashioned from woven mats. The calls and shouts, cries and gesticulations of men, women and infants became fainter and fainter. One of the Gitana or gypsy women called Catalina squatted on her hunkers, skirt spread around her on the ground, spitting periodically at a beetle crossing the sand. She looked up at Liam, speaking in Spanish, breaking his reverie. Where do you think they're going? Liam lifted his face toward the sky and glanced at the rock pools around them before answering, also in Spanish. The tide and wind is with them. They will probably try to make Cuba. If the wind drops, they will surely die, remarked the woman. Liam nodded slowly in acknowledgement. I don't think they care. Hatui, cacique of the Guajaba Taino of Kiskea, glanced down at the basket of pearls and gold nuggets between his feet in the bilge of the canoe, digging his oar and pulling hard and steady. As a boy, he had heard news of the stranger's arrival. He had heard how other caciques had welcomed these strangers in the shining clothes, had offered food and gifts to them. He had heard how the sight of gold and pearls made these strangers go crazy, one by one, villages had fallen before these madmen and their leader, Commandara Cologne. Caciques, warriors, bohiques, farmers, fishermen, women and children alike were made to dig for gold to satisfy these strangers. Those not killed in the first years by the dreaded new pestilences were taken later by torture, exhaustion, starvation, outright murder and suicide. But finally, after eight years, the great king and queen over the sea were said to have imprisoned Admiral Cologne and his brothers for their rapes, for the torture, murder and enslavement of the Taino people. News of the death of Admiral Cologne two years later had given many Taino a flicker of renewed hope that this reign of brutality, this waking nightmare, might be at an end. To his own people, having avoided the direct gaze of Admiral Cologne, dared to believe that this terrible hurricane of men had swept past and spared them. The king over the sea had even sent his white-robed Bohique to help the Taino, to teach them of the Spanish Christ God. But the next few years under the new governor Ovando changed nothing for the better. His introduction of the Spanish encomienda system to Hispaniola, a form of feudalistic governance, guaranteed that all surviving Taino on the island would remain or soon become perpetual serfs and slaves. The brutal governor Ovando was eventually replaced by none other than a son of Admiral Cologne the Destroyer, Diego Cologne, 
and the son was clearly prepared to outdo both his father and Ovando in terms of brutality. When the white-robed Bohique Fray Antonio de Montesinos railed publicly against the viciousness of Diego's Uncomandero regime, White Robe was threatened with death and forced to find sanctuary in the house of his brothers. The son of Cologne, now a viceroy, eventually prevailed upon the king over the sea to recall the interfering White Robes to Spain. The Taino were now voiceless and virtually defenseless. Many Taino had already fled into the mountains, hiding in caves, but with the milk of mothers dried up from malnutrition, babies cried in the night at famished breasts, the sound carrying far down the hills and along the valleys. Far worse than this, Hatui had heard from White Robe of the ravenous war dogs being readied by the Spanish for hunting down and feeding upon any Taino who ran away. Hatui was certain that hiding would not save his people for long. The Taino had always been proud of their peace-loving civil society. The Taino were no warrior people like the Carib of the southern islands. Hatui's people were seafarers and fisherfolk with no fear of the water. They were also farmers, but now they would need to be fighters. With only 400 of his own tribe left alive, Hatui knew that they were not strong enough to fight the Spaniards on their own. They would need to find allies among the Taino of Cuba. With the basket of golden pearls at his feet in the canoe, he was not trying to salvage any family treasure, nor was he hoping to pay any ransom to save his people. He simply needed to show the caciques of Cuba that which had driven the hairy-faced men insane. I'm Brian Halpin. Welcome to the time before we were white. Part 2. Monarchs, Merchants, and Moors The Spanish crowns were not funding exploration for exploration's sake, and they certainly were not seeking out unknown continents. The Spanish flag planted on that beach in the Bahamas in 1492 is often portrayed in a remarkably similar way to the flag of the USA being planted on the moon almost 500 years later. Brave explorers boldly going where no man had gone before, planting a flag to proudly declare, we were here. The flag of Castile was not meant to say, we were here. It was meant to say, we are here. And everything in this place now belongs to us, animal, vegetable, and mineral. Avarice and the violence it engenders echo down through the ages. But for the crowns of Castile and Aragon in 1492, the desire and need for money was particularly acute. The crown treasuries were almost exhausted from endless military campaigns, especially those fought over the preceding ten years against the Muslim Moors of Granada. Money, especially fast and easy money, was seen as the only solution to economic woe. Hard currency was still being generated from trade with distant lands already familiar to the Spanish, the Middle East, East Indies and Cathay. But by 1492, the viability of such trade was changing. The sea was becoming a new international superhighway, 
with Europeans finally able to bypass the taxes and tariffs imposed by those controlling the lands along the old Silk Roads. This new and lucrative international trade by sea was quickly coming to be monopolized by the Portuguese, who had recently established a shipping route around the southern tip of Africa as far as Madagascar. They would press on to reach India and Indonesia by 1499. If the crowns of Spain were to maintain a preeminent position of wealth and power among the European monarchies, they would need to find their own route to the East Indies, a sea route faster than the Silk Road, a sea route faster than the one newly opened by Portugal. And they would need to find it soon. While the Spanish crowns were pondering a way to improve trade routes to distant lands, a more recently developed source of revenue was becoming more and more important closer to home. During the Middle Ages, the ancestors of Iberian Moors and Arabs had already introduced sugarcane from northern India to their territories in North Africa and Iberian Al-Andalus. The Spanish and Portuguese, during the long process of reconquering Iberia, inherited the Moors' technology of sugarcane cultivation and sugar production, taking it up with enthusiasm. After all, crystalline sugar was pound for pound of similar value to the pepper, nutmeg, cloves and cinnamon being brought from the Orient at the time. Sugarcane cultivation requires three things above all, huge amounts of manual labor, plenty of sunshine and a great quantity of water. Because much of Iberia outside of Andalusia is arid, the wetter islands and territories within a relatively short sailing distance of Iberia were soon being annexed. The island of Madeira fell to the Portuguese, with the Spanish taking the Canary Islands shortly after. With ready access to non-Christian Morocco just a stone's throw away, these islands were quickly turned into slave plantations, servicing the lucrative sugar industry. Under contemporary Catholic Church teachings, no peaceful Christian could be enslaved by another Christian, but slaves could be made of non-Christians, or those captured during the course of any so-called just war. This Christian legal concept of the just war, much like the later Islamic jihads, would stalk later colonial acquisitions around the globe like a ravening beast for centuries to come. The definition of a just war would prove to be just as movable as necessary for those seeking slave labor. By the end of the 1400s, ethnic groups enslaved by Spain under these legal niceties included Moors, Jews, Romani Gypsies, and Africans from Egypt to Morocco to Timbuktu. Slaves were becoming the human engine driving the Catholic Iberian economy. It is worth a quick recap of the situation in Spain in 1492. In 1492, Spanish crown treasuries were severely depleted by years of war. In 1492, most Iberian land suitable for sugarcane was already under cultivation. For the industry to expand, more plantation land would need to be found, along with more slaves to work that land. In 1492, Spain's desire for faster access to the East Indies spice trade reached desperation point. In 1492, with Iberian currency based almost entirely on silver and gold, 
expanding the economy through what would now be called quantitative easing or printing money, meant finding sources of these metals. Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile were certainly not keen to throw scarce money at get-rich-quick schemes, especially schemes put forward by social climbing and overly persistent Genoese merchant sailors. And yet, as a calculated risk, the scheme put forward by the man known to history as Christopher Columbus had much to recommend it. If successful, the idea of sailing west to reach Cathay in the East Indies could kill multiple birds with one stone. One, a new and faster trade route to the east. Two, access to new markets and goods. Three, access to new sources of silver and gold, whether through trade, mining, or plunder. Four, if all else failed, this enterprise might open up new lands and islands for sugarcane plantations. And if the local population were not traders, then they could be turned into miners and plantation slaves. Thus was the fateful decision taken to fund the Empresa, or Enterprise, of Commander Columbus, and a very simple plan was soon made. A crew was gathered, including goldsmiths and Jewish interpreters, Columbus fully expecting to be greeted by Jewish merchants in Cathay or the East Indies. The recently acquired Canary Islands were perhaps one week sailing time from Sevilla. Using faulty calculations, Columbus believed the East Indies to be perhaps twice that distance again from the Canary Islands. This was no purposely outrageous leap into the unknown, and no one thought the world was flat. This was a clear-headed but miscalculated plan to carry enough supplies to allow an outbound sailing time of two or three weeks instead of the usual one. Luckily for Columbus and his crew, there was no price to pay for this grave miscalculation of world diameter. And luckily for Columbus and his crew, the world between the Canary Islands and the East Indies was not unbroken sea. Seen in this light, the Spanish virtually stumbling upon the so-called New World should not really be represented in school history classes as an adventure during the Age of Exploration, with Columbus as a proto-Captain Kirk seeking out new life and new civilizations. The discovery of the Americas was in fact a simple clear extension of the economic competition Warfare, annexation, looting and enslavement already taking place in Iberia and Africa at that time. In perhaps one of the greatest ironies in all human history, it is entirely possible that a small watercraft washed ashore in Ireland during the 1470s and described by Columbus in the margins of one of his books was in fact a Taino canoe dragged across the Atlantic by weather, currents, chance or intent. It has been speculated that the dead man and woman still lashed to this watercraft appeared to the local people of Galway as Chinese. This accidental landing of an apparently Caribbean sea craft on the western edge of Europe more than any other event may have served to inspire the Italian to seek a route to Cathay by sailing west. The tables would be turned and he, Columbus, would be a European accidentally landing in the Caribbean the eastern edge of what would later be called America. Over the next decades and centuries, thousands of communities of people on the western side of the Atlantic Ocean would come to rue the luck of Cristofa Combo, 
a.k.a. Christopher Columbus, and his gifts of gunpowder, cold steel, Catholicism, and smallpox. Long before the fall of the last Iberian Muslim kingdom of Granada to the Christian Spanish crowns in 1492, the Christian-ruled parts of Iberia had always included a substantial non-Christian, non-Spanish, non-white, if you will, population. Perhaps as much as 10%, including both free and unfree. Even a substantial portion of the nominally white Spanish Christian majority population were not really white or ethnically pure Spanish when we consider the centuries of intermingling between the Spanish, Basque and Moorish peoples. Both the Christian and Muslim ruled parts of Iberia had slave populations drawn from almost everywhere, arriving from as far afield as the slave markets of Asian Bukhara in the east to African Timbuktu in the south. Prior to the Reconquista, Muslim Moors under Spanish rule were subject to forced labor or encomienda, and Christian Spaniards under Moorish rule were also subject to servitude and enslavement. As a general rule, Muslims kept Christian slaves and Christians kept Muslim slaves with skin color only much later becoming important to social status and rights. The complex ethnic makeup of Spain caused a dilemma when Spain considered how to populate its new colonies in America in the early decades after 1492. For a start, the earliest Spanish settlers of Hispaniola had brought no women with them, This led to the ruthless sexual exploitation of native women and girls, as we see attested in numerous pieces of Spanish correspondence from the time. The Spanish crowns vigorously sought to curtail settlers' intercourse with indigenous women, not out of concern for the victim's welfare, but because the legal foundation for human enslavement and economic success depended upon the existence of a clear line between free Christians of Spanish blood and enslavable non-Christians of non-Spanish blood. The sudden emergence of a mixed Spanish Taino population of indeterminate legal status was a cause of great alarm. But where to find the Spanish, or at the very least Latinized, men and women willing to risk a sea crossing, hunger, disease and warfare? One might think that the conquest of Granada would have provided a perfect confluence of events for Spain. Spain had already ordered all practicing Jews and Muslims to convert to Christianity or leave the country. Why not simply enslave these newly conquered non-Christians and ship them to the Spanish colonies? The persecution of Moors and Jews following Reconquista had, after all, caused many of these newly dispossessed peoples to view the New World as an opportunity. But with many Moors already involved in rebellions and local uprisings against forced mass conversions to the Christian faith, the last thing Spain wanted was a swarm of non-Catholic and rebellious subjects boarding ships in Spain and reappearing in our new overseas colonies where a great many Negros Bozales, African slaves, were also Muslim. Recently disenfranchised Iberian Moorish Muslims making common cause with African Muslims might have proved catastrophic to Spain's project. 
Besides this, the orders and edicts expelling the Moors and Jews from Spain were intended to be highly symbolic more than practical. Official expulsion of non-Christians was a way for Spain to announce itself to the rest of Europe as a holy Christian nation and monarchy, having been viewed with suspicion for centuries by Central European Catholic monarchs due to its large non-Christian population. In reality, the Spanish crowns had no intention of further diminishing the more literate, skilled and taxpaying workforce of Iberia, a workforce already depleted by ten years of war in Granada. The early decision to expel all Jews from the entire Iberian Peninsula in 1492 had already proven a blow to the Spanish economy, with Jewish communities having included many merchants, highly skilled artisans and craftspeople. So while publicly announcing the expulsion and exile of non-Christians, official migration points were located and policed in such a way as to make emigration as difficult as possible in the hope that most Moors and any remaining Jews would be forced to choose conversion and assimilation over exile and emigration. Many of the better off still chose to flee Iberia via any available route, official or unofficial. But at the very least, Spanish authorities hoped to dictate the eventual destinations of the people she had officially expelled. Most exiles attempted to head south to Morocco and east to Greece, into territories controlled by the Muslim Ottoman Empire, where some would go on to prosper in the mercantile trades, including the burgeoning transatlantic and Barbary Coast slave trade. Many others with enough money did in fact choose to attempt a fresh start in the New World, booking or bribing passage through ports in southern Spain and North Africa. As to the non-Christian, non-white, non-professional lower classes without money, these unfortunate people simply found themselves trapped in a hostile environment, liable to legislative whim, pogroms, transportation and exploitation for years and years to come. Today, the world celebrates their surviving culture in the form of things like flamenco music and dance. And so it was that Spain, like most other conquering powers in history, eventually opted for fudged solutions in its efforts to plant its new overseas territories with a primarily Latinized population. Ten years after Columbus made landfall in Hispaniola, Spain began to exile its centuries-old population of Negros Ladinos to that island. These were the free and unfree Africans of various ethnic origins who had become essentially Spanish over centuries in Iberia. The funders of the Colombian enterprise would also innovate the transportation of criminals to the New World, with amnesties being offered to convicts willing to relocate to the new Spanish colonies overseas. Such criminals might include anyone from murderers, rapists, gypsies, beggars, vagrants and thieves, to mujeres públicas, or fallen women. It is perhaps surprising to learn that relatively few criminals chose to avail of this amnesty. Many more would eventually be persuaded. The population of Spanish overseas colonies was thus increased, while simultaneously ridding Catholic Spain of its undesirables. This commercial and social engineering model would be borrowed and used by various other European nations right up until the last English ship deposited its human cargo on the shores of Australia in 1868.
Part 3 Aftermath During the decades after 1492, in Spain and New Spain, laws governing non-Christians were passed and those laws were often flouted and ignored. Edicts were made and edicts were soon forgotten or rescinded. Moriscos and conversos, the Moors and Jews who publicly converted to Christianity in order to be allowed to remain in Spain after 1492, might have been officially tolerated, but they remained on shaky ground in practice, regularly accused of being fake converts, with Catholic Church Inquisition set up to root out such heretics. Relentless persecution, including property confiscation, widespread imprisonment, forced servitude, involuntary transportation overseas, enslavement, or even judicial and extrajudicial killings ensured that Moors, Muslims, Jews, and Gypsies, who were officially barred from entering Spanish overseas colonies, often arrived there anyway, free and unfree. Indeed, one of the first people from the Old World to set foot in what would later be called Florida, Texas, and New Mexico was the Muslim Arabic-speaking Moor, Mustafa Zamuri, better known to history by his forced conversion name of Estevanico. Members of this Iberian multi-ethnic underclass, when they did reach the Americas, were exactly the people most likely to intermarry with others at the bottom of the social hierarchy, indigenous peoples and the growing African population of the New World. The history of the Americas obviously did not begin with an Italian merchant planting the flag of a Spanish queen on a Guanahanian beach, later called the Bahamas, in 1492. Cultural bigots might say, oh yes, but the arrival of Europeans was the beginning of civilization in the Americas. The natives at the time were essentially Stone Age savages. Such a characterization is not only inaccurate, it is a shocking injustice to the memory of what the Taino had built and achieved and the way in which their culture was brutally crushed. Columbus' childhood friend and accomplice, Michele de Cuneo, who we met earlier in this episode, was forthright about the treatment of the Taino when writing about La Impresa in 1495. Quote, When our caravels were ready to depart for Spain, aboard which I intended to return home, we gathered at our settlement 1,600 Indians, male and female. We loaded 650 of the best, both men and women, aboard those caravels on 17 February, 1495. Regarding the rest, it was declared that whoever wanted some of them could take them as he wished. And so it was. When everyone was supplied, approximately 400 still remained who were permitted to go wherever they liked. Among those were many females with nursing infants, who, so as to better escape from us, fearing that we would return to take them, abandoned their children to their fate, leaving them on the ground and fleeing like desperate persons. They fled so far that they distanced themselves seven or eight days from Isabella, our settlement, beyond mountains and great rivers, so that it will be nearly impossible to take them in the future. Among the captives was one of their kings with two principal men, it was decided that they should be executed with arrows the following day. For this purpose they were shackled, but that night they were so adept at gnawing at one another's heels with their teeth that they escaped from the shackles and fled. 
The news of this capture and the loading of people aboard the caravels came to the notice of King Guacanagari, neighbour to our settlement, who sent an ambassador to King Keonabo, his superior, to inform him of the matter. King Keonabo commanded him to go personally to the Lord Admiral to hear why he had done this, but sent two of his own most wise and eloquent men to the Lord Admiral to inform him of the situation. But the Lord Admiral sent word that Guacanagari himself should come, so that he could better explain everything to the king. In the meantime, I departed for Spain aboard those caravels. We sailed in heavy and contrary weather, and it was necessary to turn back three times, so that we passed a month among those islands. For this reason, seeing that we had few provisions, we set our course to the north and proceeded approximately 600 miles, as pleased God we had such favourable winds that we passed from the island of Boroquen all the way to the island of Madeira in 23 days. But by the time we had reached Spanish waters, approximately 200 of the Indians had died. I believe it was because they were unaccustomed to the air, which is colder than theirs, and we cast them into the sea. The first land we sighted was Cape Spartel, and very soon after we reached Cadiz, where we unloaded the slaves, half of whom were sick. For your information, they are not men made for work, and they fear greatly the cold and do not live long. Unquote. The Spanish invasion and conquest of Hispaniola, an island called Quisquea by its rightful inhabitants, and much later divided into the nation-states of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, was no case of white man's burden, in which more civilized people claimed to introduce the benefits of sophisticated culture to primitive hunter-gatherers. The ancestors of the Taino had been in the Americas for at least 14,000 years, and in the Caribbean for centuries. They were neither primitive hunter-gatherers nor savages, awaiting first contact with more advanced people. Taino society and culture was rich and complex, with equally complex political structures governing it. They played organized team sports. They built and navigated superb ocean-going watercraft for fishing and trading. They practiced extensive agriculture. They sang and played music, painted and created sculpture. Hurricane, iguana, canoe, papaya, hammock, barbecue, manatee, tobacco. Just some of the words given to the world by a peaceful, industrious and civilized people. Colonialism via social engineering and ethnic cleansing has always been dumb, violent, ugly, absurd, awkward, and mostly impossible. And despite Spain's best efforts at social engineering, within 50 years of Columbus' arrival in the Caribbean, the Spanish-controlled islands had become a multi-ethnic, multicolored melting pot of people from at least four continents practicing a variety of religions. These people included the Taino themselves, Caribs, Free Peninsular Spanish, Free Creole Spanish, Unfree Iberians, otherwise known as Moors, Unfree Creoles, Black Spanish or Negros Ladinos, Black Africans or Negros Bozales, Spanish Romani Gitanos, Portuguese, Portuguese Romani Chiganos, Irish, French, Dutch, Sephardic Jewish, and numerous Castizos, Mestizos, Pardos, Mulatos, Zambos, and Maroons. 
Here's where one might reasonably ask, hmm, what does all this have to do with North American ethnicity? What does it have to do with American families today in Boston, Massachusetts, Knoxville, Tennessee, or Austin, Texas? The conquest and settlement of Hispaniola is a particularly good microcosm for illustrating the complex ethnic mixes which arose almost immediately following the first European contact with the Americas. In 1492 on Hispaniola, the foundations were laid for the genesis and growth of a multi-ethnic underclass which would continue to flow like an underground river through the Spanish New World for the next 500 years. Most U.S. Americans think that colonization in Plymouth, Massachusetts or Jamestown, Virginia during the 1600s was somehow immune to this complex ethnic intermixing such as that seen in Hispaniola. Most U.S. Americans think that the USA is different because they've been taught that they are mostly descended from English Puritans, Presbyterian Scots-Irish, German Lutherans, and from various Scandinavians, Irish, and Scots. In other words, most Americans are certain that they descend exclusively from Northern and Central European white people. Most Americans further believed that British and later USA authorities were somehow able to achieve and maintain a centuries-long separation of races, a goal which the mighty Spanish Empire itself could not achieve. And most Americans would be utterly wrong. Every single ethnicity found in 1500s Hispaniola and more in addition, would also eventually be found in 17th and 18th century colonial North America, and again, mostly among the underclasses. One might argue that the Spanish colonial enterprise and experience was completely different to that of the English. While the actual exact ethnic admixtures and the exact commercial and social dynamics were indeed different in many ways, the essence of both projects shares much in common. Spain and England both attempted to remake the so-called New World in the image of their homelands, Spanish Catholic New Spain and English Protestant New England, respectively. Both powers attempted to do this in places with large and flourishing non-European, non-Christian populations. Both powers attempted to do this in the first instance using the forced labor of their own underclasses and slave labor drawn from local indigenous populations, only later incorporating slave labor from elsewhere around the world, especially Africa. For any slave economy to function, clear lines between the free and unfree are required. The Spanish casta system drew dozens of lines based on class, religion, culture and ethnicity attempting to describe and delineate a whole spectrum of colours and inter-ethnic mixtures, along with a matching hierarchy of rights and limitations to go along with these different categories. The English, for their first few decades in America, drew no colour lines at all. The English did not share Spain's complex history of interaction with the Arab and African world. The difference between personal liberty and servitude in the American English colonies, at least at first, was based solely on one's social rank, religion, or the failure to be born English. Only in 1619, with the capture by English privateers of a Portuguese slave ship containing 20 and odd Africans off the coast of Virginia, was the first seed of a racial ideology planted. And once servitude became associated with skin color, the English, unlike the Spanish, 
preferred to keep things simple. With typical Protestant dogmatism, color lines were drawn from a far more limited palette. For the foreseeable future, humans would be Christian or non-Christian, and simply black, white, or red. For 400 years, America has carefully curated language to reinforce, underpin, and dovetail with this bleached and faded rainbow of three colors, racial categories stripped bare of any actual ethnic meaning. And over the past 400 years, most people in America agreed to join, or were forced to join, one of these three races. And so the story of the in-between people has remained untold. It is the story of the American underclasses who once fell between arbitrary and fake racial lines. Racial lines conjured from nothing, but given force by legislation. This story is about the children and descendants of the Mestizos, the Mulattoes, the Quadroons, the Octoroons, the Melungeons, and the Half-Breeds. This is the story of Lascars and Lansados, Gypsies and Cypriots, Moors and Turks, Sami and Nansimond, Shawnee and Armenian, Persians and Malagasy, a story lost in time, in a fog of forgetting. Sadly, the people who might have told this story, our great-grandparents and their great-grandparents, are no longer here to bear witness, even had they chosen to do so. The story from the time before we were white has been buried, but luckily not so deep that it cannot be excavated and brought back into the light. Portuguese and Spanish navigators of the 15th century changed the world forever. They showed that the oceans and seas, far from being vast barriers, could become highways connecting the world. Within 30 years of Columbus making landfall in the Caribbean, ships had circumnavigated the globe. By 1692, two centuries after Columbus, a ship's passage from the Caribbean to New England was almost routine. And in an unfortunate piece of symmetry, in 1692, exactly 200 years after the rape of a Taino woman on board one of Columbus's ships, another woman would be the first to be accused of witchcraft in Salem, Massachusetts. Her name? Tituba, an indigenous Carib woman enslaved and carried far north into a world of small-town Puritan politics, dread, and superstition. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by me, Brian Halpin, with sound engineering by John Wilkinson and theme music performed by Dave McLaughlin and Ray Cohen. If you would like to support our podcast, please visit the Before We Were White page at Patreon. Thank you for listening.